So we're continuing this morning in Acts chapter 5, the New Testament lesson. We're going to make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Deliverance, defense, dishonor. First, deliverance. We're told by Luke that the high priest rose up and all who were with him. And he reminds us that they're Sadducees. They were, we're told, filled with jealousy. Luke pulls no punches, right? Their motives were base. They're not noble. Jealousy, Proverbs 6 says, makes a man furious. Right? And the apostolic community, having provoked jealousy, is increasingly subject to sporadic fury. Jealousy makes a man furious. And so the apostles, now, now this is not just Peter and John, this means either most or all of them, the apostles are arrested. So they're trying to clamp down on, on the broader swath of the leadership, right? They're arrested, they're placed in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord. Now remember, the Sadducees don't believe in angels, so there's probably some irony going on here. An angel of the Lord opens the prison doors, brings them out, delivers them, and gives them this commission. Go and stand in the temple. In other words, go back to the site of the conflict, right? So this is a divine command. It's bound to increase the tension, heighten it. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people. I mean, after all, this all started when they were charged in the last confrontation to speak no more to the people in this name. So the angel of the Lord overrides the injunction. Speak to them, they are charged And notice this phrase, speak to them all the words of this life. Christianity is a life. It's life and it is a life. It's It's sharing or participation in the common life of the triune God through the risen Christ. When we talk about the Christian faith, we are talking about partaking in the very life of God. Through the risen Jesus. When Christ, Paul says, who is your life. Right? It's not that Christ injects a little spirituality or a little spiritual life into our vaporizing lives. It's that we share in his very life. The bond of union with Christ is such that his life actually is your life. This is why Paul can say to live is Christ. He is the life, eternal life, eschatological life, heavenly life, the life of the age to come, indestructible life, the font of life, the life of God in our humanity through the Spirit. In Him, John says, was life, and the life was the light of men. And that same John puts it this way in his first epistle, right? He says, he speaks of the word of life, which we saw and touched and handled. And it was manifest. And we testify, we proclaim the life that was with the Father. The eternal life of God has been made manifest to us. That is what the apostolic church and what we proclaim to the world. Go stand in the temple and proclaim all the words of this life. So we don't need to do life better. 
Right? We need resurrection from the dead. We need the life, life of a different order. We need new creation. We need communion with the one who is the resurrection and the life. And that's what we have. That's what you have in Jesus. And that's what we proclaim to the world. So the apostles enter the temple at daybreak, right around the time the crowds would be gathering for the morning sacrifices, and they begin to teach all the words of this life. And so the Sanhedrin assembles. They send to the prison to have them brought. Of course, they're not there. They come back and say, we found no one inside. The guards were at the door. The prison was securely locked. There's nobody inside. And so the authorities are greatly perplexed. And then someone comes to them and says, look, the men you put in prison, they're standing in the temple. They're teaching the people. Now you can imagine the outrage that this would provoke. So the captain, right? This is a police force, right? They have, they have police powers. The captain and his officers go and bring, bring them to stand essentially for a trial. But something interesting happens right here. There's a lot of interesting things in this text, but here's one of them. They were not brought by force. The text says the temple authorities were afraid that they would get stoned by the people because the people were with the apostles. So the apostles have leverage in this situation. They could have easily said, no, come get us. They could have stood their ground. They could have avoided the arrest. But they kept the peace, they avoided a riot, and they went on their own accord. And they appeared before the council. They're happy to explain themselves, even to prejudicial authorities. So that's their deliverance. Briefly, their defense. We've seen this before, but the high priest questions them. Now notice, the high priest doesn't even ask, how did you get out of prison? He's a Sadducee. It's safe to assume he doesn't think there's anything divine about it. He figures somebody let them out. We strictly charge you to teach, not to teach in this name, he says. And as we see, they have authority to do this. Right? It's just that they're misusing their authority. They're misusing it because they refuse to consider seriously the claims of the gospel. But, you know, we should be sensitive. These are new and apparently to them novel claims. So we can all, as I've said before, we can all fall into this trap where all we're doing is defending our system, right? Or we're protecting our turf because we're personally, we're emotionally invested in these things as they were. But you have to be dangerous, right? You get to the point where you're no longer seeking the truth, you're defending the flag, and that's what the Sanhedrin is doing. They're defending the flag. And their behavior is driven here by fear, right? It's reactionary. It's impossible to dialogue with. And as I said, it's a temptation, especially for those in authority. So they say to the apostles, you filled Jerusalem with this teaching. Meaning we're losing control of the situation on the ground. It's another thing about religious tyranny. It's a form of fear and insecurity. 
They say, you, you intend to bring this man's blood on our head? You're going to stir the people up. You're going to get us killed. That's basically what they're saying. You know what they forget here? They forget that when Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And you'll remember what happens after that. Pilate washes his hands before the crowd. And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the Sanhedrin apparently forgot the cry, which was this. His blood be upon us and our children. That's a dreadful self-maledictory oath right there. His blood be upon us and our children. But Peter and the apostles answer the injunction against teaching in the name of Christ. They do it the same way they did it previously. They say this. We must obey God rather than men. Right? We're trying to be good subjects here. By the way, this is subjection to the authorities. We're going to keep on preaching. You can arrest us if you need to. We'll submit to the sanctions. Right? And then they give a brief proclamation, Peter does, of the gospel. We've seen it before. It's basically three points. The God of our fathers has raised Jesus from the dead. You killed him. He raised him up. You condemned him, God vindicated him. He's not only raised, Peter says, but he's exalted to God's right hand. Christ was crucified, Christ is raised, Christ is exalted, and from there he grants repentance and the forgiveness of sins. How does this function at this point in the narrative to a people who cried out for the blood of Christ to be on them and their children? It's an offer of divine amnesty from Peter, right? He grants repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Yes, you killed him, but God raised him and he's here through my mouth to grant you repentance and forgiveness. This is the gospel in its clearest, simplest form. Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised for your justification. Jesus is exalted to defend and to save you, to grant you repentance, to forgive your sins. And Peter says, we're eyewitnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. It's a simple defense, right? It's mere gospel. Now, it's unadorned by any polemical viciousness. There's nothing snide about it, right? Peter, Peter's not trying to win any kind of verbal chess match with these guys. He's not trying to show them up or mock them. Right? There's no polemical viciousness. There's no ulterior motives. There's no hidden agenda. Here's the gospel. Because all of this is true, the apostles say, though because it's all true, we must keep preaching and teaching. And what's the reaction to this? They dispassionately considered the truth claims of the apostles concerning Jesus. No, of course not. The text says they were enraged. They were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. And that brings me to the third point, the dishonor. So you get this scene of Gamaliel's counsel, which I'm not going to unpack. You know, his counsel is to wait, see what becomes of this movement. I will just say this. It's not great counsel. Right? There's lots of godly things that die quickly in history, lots of ungodly things that last 1,700 years. 
right? The idea that you could just wait and see and figure out what things are from God and what things are not is a nonsensical, naive view of history. But in any case, after they, they decide, all right, we'll take Gamaliel's counsel. They call the apostles back in, and the text says they beat them. Now remember, there's a bunch of them here. Most of them are all of them, which means they beat them one at a time. Now, whether this was the 39 lashes prescribed in the law, which is possible, right? Paul was subject to the 39 lashes five times, he says. We're not sure it's that, but it could be that. We do know this. It's not a slap on the wrist. It would most likely involve a thick leather strap across the back and chest. They beat them. They whipped them. And then they charged them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And what I want to focus on in the last portion of this sermon, and I will just let you know, I'm going to try and recalibrate you here. What I want to focus on is this astonishing and for us incomprehensible response of the apostles. Right? Bloody, beaten, whipped, lashed by the authorities, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. They were not disheartened by the corrupt authorities or the opposition. They didn't start lamenting the state of the culture that led them to this point. Jesus had told them to expect this. This is normal. And when they bring you before the synagogues, not if, but when they bring you, and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself. The Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is not just limited to the apostles. Paul will say later in Acts, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What does John say? John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God. And in the opening couple of verses of the book of Revelation, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the patience, and in the kingdom that are in Jesus. No tribulation, no kingdom. No kingdom, no tribulation. They're fused together in this age. Now, here's the recalibration part. We think, and part of this is just being an American, I think. We think suffering at the hands of our enemies is a sign of defeat. It must mean we lost some social, cultural, political liberty or battle. It must mean we need lawyers and fresh strategies. Maybe we run for office. Maybe we need to appeal to the Roman Senate. Maybe we need to remove these corrupt priestly authorities from office. We could back more moderate Sadducees. We must need some kind of political reform. We must overthrow this injustice. We may need to fight their abusive force with force. We certainly will have to take to social media and expose this corruption. 
And certainly we will continue to mock them and satirize them. But the apostles, they rejoice. They are happy with the gospel, with its proclamation, though all else be taken from them, they know the word of God cannot be chained. And listen, I want you to get this. This rejoicing is not a concession. It's not a consolation prize. It's not like this. It's like, okay, we lost this cultural battle, but we will rejoice anyway. You know, because eventually we'll win. This is not some sort of pragmatic rejoicing because our suffering will lead to some long-term good results. They are rejoicing as if they were receiving a high honor. As if they had just won a great prize. There's nothing calculating about this rejoicing. They rejoice, the text says. Now listen to this. It's in the text. Because they were counted worthy. That is, they were numbered and honored by heaven itself. Counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Think of that. right? That's an honor that our culture warriors do not want. No thank you. Like in the words of the 19th century reform commentator, J.A. Alexander, on this passage, he grasps the paradox here. Alexander says this, they were honored to be dishonored. Let me ask you this, right? Are you honored to be dishonored by the cultural elites and, and, and authorities? Do you count it an honor? Do you rejoice? They were honored to be dishonored, Alexander says. They were graced to be disgraced. Here's the difference. We're angry to be dishonored, and we're indignant when we're disgraced. In the second century, there's a famous letter very early in the second century. It's known as the Epistle to Diagnetus. He's not talking about this passage. He's talking about Christians in general. He says this. They are dishonored, and they are glorified in their dishonor. Not glorified by the effects downstream of their dishonor, glorified in their dishonor. When they are punished, they rejoice as if brought back to life. This is the question, beloved. Are we going to be recalibrated to the Church of the Apostles of the Martyrs? Or are we going to just stay in the American milieu? When they were punished... They rejoiced as if they were brought back to life. Apparently, they didn't think winning, I put it in quotes because we're always using the word the wrong way. They didn't think winning consisted of controlling all the long-term levers of power. They understood that winning in this age takes the form of losing. We think real winning is winning the Supreme Court and winning the election and winning the Congress back. They think real winning is getting beaten for the name. We conquer as Jesus did. At least that's the way we're supposed to conquer. The way the apostles do here, by being conquered. And any political theology that doesn't have this paradox at the center of it is not a Christian political theology. So they grasp something. Something we refuse to grasp. They grasp Jesus' teaching and his example. Both his examples important under Pilate, 1 Peter 2, we follow his footsteps. 
When he was threatened, he didn't threaten. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he waited for his father to raise him from the dead. That's where his vindication was. We're to follow his example and his teaching. Blessed. Now, this is a benediction. Right in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Just stop right there. I know you've all heard this many times. But it's kind of absurd on an American ear, is it not? Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Is there, by the way, is there a beatitude that says something like, Blessed are you when you've won the cultural battle and the church is free, prosperous, dominated, not slandered, not reviled, not hated, not excluded, not persecuted. Leap and be glad, for great is your reward on the earth. I think that's the beatitude that's running around in our heads. Who says, blessed are you when you're persecuted? And, not, and, so, and what comes with the blessedness? What comes with the blessedness? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to build the kingdom? You want to see the kingdom come? You know where it is? It's in the church in Syria, in Nigeria, in Iran. Find Christians persecuted around the world for righteousness. Not only do you find the benediction or blessing of God on them, you find the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven on that day. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You want, to, you want to be in the line of the prophets? You want to render prophetic witness in the earth? This is what it, it means. And this is why the apostles, lashed and bloody and beaten, rejoiced to be counted worthy. Right? We heard it from Luke's gospel. Here it is again in Luke. It's slightly different. Jesus puts it this way. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you. And when they revile and spurn your name as evil, rejoice. And then he says, leap for joy. Just leap for joy. They took your property. They took your liberty. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. The kingdom of heaven itself, our blessedness, our reward, these are gifts of persecution, of disenfranchisement, of marginalization, of powerlessness. We need to be recalibrated to this. The apostles grasp this. We don't. We're not interested in heavenly treasure that comes this way. right? We prefer to get it now. They had, there's something going on here, right, that's transcendent. A kind of joy they had which is otherworldly. I read an account recently of Richard Wormbrandt. Many of you know him, the famous Romanian pastor, famous for smuggling Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain. And Wormbrandt said that he struggled to find joy outside of prison like he had it inside of prison. Struggled. This very same Peter, the apostle who's preaching here in our text, right? he learned the same lesson. Right? What, what Peter later would write this. Listen to this. But rejoice insofar as. Now again, how would we finish that? Rejoice insofar as. 
In other words, there's as much joy as there is this next thing. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter again, same text. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This will recalibrate the way you engage. It doesn't mean you don't engage the culture. It just means you need to be recalibrated. The spirit of glory, the spirit of glory, Peter says, that's the the spirit of the heavenly spirit, the glorious radiance of God rests upon you when you're insulted. This is something that was understood not just by the apostles, but by the second and third century church in a profound, profound way. I want to read you something briefly here. There was a, there was a piece of legislation in Rome known as the Senatus Consultum. Right? It, was, it was an anti-Christian piece of legislation. Many of you know this famous story of the martyrdom of per- Perpetua and Felicity. Right? They're condemned under this legislation to face the beasts and the gladiators in Carthage in the spring of 203, 203, the Septimian persecutions. Severus Septimian is the Roman emperor, right? Vibia Perpetua, a woman of noble birth and a young mother. It's a young mother. And her servant, Felicity, who herself had given birth just before their ordeal. You have two young women. They're both young mothers. One's the mother of a newborn, Right? And a a handful of other Christians, fellow Christians, right, did not recoil. I'm reading from a book called Caesar and the Lamb, which recounts this. They did not recoil. They entered the arena as noble athletes. And here's the account. You can get this online. You can read it anywhere. This is the account of Perpetua and Felicity. 203. And this is how Christians narrated these things. The day of their triumph dawned. Brothers and sisters, if that does not recalibrate you, then there's a problem. They cheerfully came forth from the prison to the amphitheater. Right? As if to heaven. Right? This is the early church narrating the killing in cold blood of two women leaving behind little children. The day of their triumph dawned. And they cheerfully came forth from the prison to the amphitheater. This is the difference between a church with an eschatological perspective and one that does not have one. They came forth as if from heaven, with their faces composed. And if perchance they trembled, it was not from fear, but with joy. Perpetua was following with a bright face and calm gait as a matron of Christ, as a woman pleasing to God, and by the power of her gaze, casting down everyone's stares. Also, Felicitas came forth. Now listen to this. Rejoicing that she had safely borne her child so that she could fight the beasts 
going from blood to blood, from the midwife to the gladiator, about to wash after childbirth in a second baptism. Right, this is not just Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not just the apostles. This is not just because you have a pastor obsessed with the eschaton. This is how the church in the second and third century recounted these events. When they were led to the gate, they were forced to put on garments. The men, those of the priests of Saturn. The women, however, in those of the priestesses of Ceres. That noble woman, Perpetua, fought this right up to the end. For she said, it was for this reason that we arrived at this situation of our own accord, lest our freedom be smothered. I'm here of my own accord. This is an act of the highest dignity and freedom. And I'm not going to have my freedom smothered. We sacrificed our lives. She already talks as if she's already dead. We sacrificed, past tense, our lives just so that we might not be taking part in such activities. And then the narrator says this, injustice recognized justice. The tribune yielded and they were brought in directly just as they were. The authorities said, okay, fine. We will not make you put the garments of these pagan priests on. Now, after another Christian named Satyrus was thrown to the ground unconscious and was with the others in the usual place to have his throat cut, the crowd began to demand that they be put in the center of the arena so that their eyes might be added as attendants of murder to the sword that sunk in their flesh. And the martyrs voluntarily got up and went over to where the crowd wished. You want a better view of this? You want a better view of this slaughter? You want your eyes to see it good? We want to testify. Sure, we'll get up. We'll walk over to the middle. Because this is our day of triumph. This is our heavenly day. This is a day with our liberty and freedom on on display. So they went over to where the crowd wished. Then finally, they kissed each other. They perfected their martyrdom, it says, with a sacred kiss of peace. The others indeed received the sword without moving and in silence. Perpetua, Perpetua, however, was to taste further pain. She howled as she was punctured between the bones and herself steered the airy hand of the novice gladiator to her own throat. Perhaps so great a woman, who was feared by the impure spirits, could not be killed in any other way unless she herself wished it. Where's all the anger and all the fear and all the lamenting and all the whining and all the crying that I always hear all the time? This is their glory. This is their great reward. The kingdom of heaven, the blessedness of God. Come not to the church ascendant or politically dominated. There are no promises or benedictions on such a body. At least not in the Sermon on the Mount. They come to the church under the sign and the shame and the suffering of the cross. They come to those who are honored to be dishonored. 
followers of the dishonored and immolated lamb. And this, beloved, is just Christian teaching. We've forgotten it. This doesn't belong to Anabaptists or pacifists. And it's Reformed teaching. Here, I'll go to as solid, a stable, centrist reform source as I can find. R.C. Sproul. On this passage. Now ask yourself, do we talk like this? Do our leaders and pastors talk like this? Because if they don't, get different leaders and pastors. Here's what Sproul says. There is no higher honor or glory for a human being to receive on this planet than that of partaking in the humiliation of Christ. This, he continues, is the only part of his glory that he will share with us in this world. In heaven, the rest of his glory will be showered upon us, but now we glory in his cross. This is what glory in the cross means. Finally, here is Calvin. He says this. Indeed, he says, hardly one in a hundred understands that the public shame or disgrace of Christ is superior to all the triumphs of the world. Imagine with me for a minute. Here's an experiment. It's a provocative one, I know. There's more to be said. Imagine we fight the, the, we engage the culture the right way. I mean, I think we have a long way to go here, but let's just say we're embodying the way of the cross. We're showing the meekness and love of Jesus for our enemies. We're praying for our persecutors. We engage the culture. And we, we end up in a situation where there's a lot of freedom and dominance of Christianity and the church is prosperous and free and unmolested. That's scenario one. What about scenario two where we do the same thing? We engage the culture, but we end up in prison. Our lot ends up like Felicitas and, and Perpetua. Which one's winning? Which one has greater heavenly reward? Which one has promised greater eschatological glory? Listen, Calvin again. Hardly one in a hundred understands that the public shame or the disgrace of Christ is superior to all the triumphs of the world. Participation in the sufferings of Christ, Calvin goes on to say, is our only comfort. You might say, what about the resurrection and the power and the glory? Well, yes, they're found in the form of the cross. In this age, as Sproul puts it, God's glory comes in the way of the cross. In the next age, there'll be no cross. So we are to be a people, right? Get at least this much, beloved. We're to be a people who, under the cross, are honored to be dishonored, right? So the next time some public official in the current administration or the next one says something uh, demeaning about Christianity, rejoice and be glad. And then pray for them. Say, this is a great honor. It is a great honor when people revile us, right? We're to be graced to be disgraced. Now, listen, I know we're not about to face the kind of martyrdom and persecution that I just read about, but we are in a culturally unraveling situation. And we are likely to face more persecution down the road, I suspect, right? I think it was the Catholic Bishop of Chicago about 10, 15 years ago said, I am likely to die in my bed as an old man. My successor is likely to be imprisoned, and his successor could be a martyr, you know, trying to read out the cultural trends. 
But the point is, wherever the culture goes, maybe it turns and goes the other way, wherever, we have to be recalibrated. Right? We have to decide, are we going to engage in the way of the cross, the way of the Sermon on the Mount, as a people who are honored to be dishonored? We desperately need this recalibration in this moment, I think. May God grant us, as one of the famous prayers of the church says, to have our hearts fixed where true treasure resides. Amen.